you're accepted here just as you are. Um, and we hope you don't stay the same. We hope that every single one of us, uh, as part of being a, a part of this worshiping community, that together we are growing more and more into the people that God created us to be. And this year, specifically in 2023, we're really focusing on growth in, in many aspects of our lives. Um, but what I wanna talk about tonight is this idea that growth is a, a two-dimensional phenomenon. It's a two-dimensional process or I should say at least a two-dimensional process. And I think we often tend to approach growth or, or moving toward health one-dimensionally. What do I mean by that? Um, let me give you a really simple example to illustrate what I'm trying to say. Um, if you're trying to get in shape, right, you can cut out junk food. That's a great start. Fast food, junk food, things that aren't good for you. Uh, cutting that out is great, but that's just one dimension. Cutting out the bad is great, but, but what about changing your diet to incorporate more things that are good for you? Do you even know what things are good for you? I don't have the time, and I am a full-grown adult, and half the time I'm like, I don't, which one is healthier? I don't know. Uh, I thought bread was healthy for a really long time. It's the whole bottom of the pyramid. Turns out, not great for you. Um, so if you cut out the bad while introducing new good things for, things that are good for you, that's when you really start to see change happen. Um, or sometimes we come at it the other way. Uh, again, say you wanna get in shape, so you start exercising regularly, but you continue to have an unhealthy diet. Um, it's never gonna be a bad decision to exercise, but if you take up that good thing of exercising while cutting out unhealthy dietary habits, then you're gonna really see growth. Uh, I get tricked into this thing all the time. I think if, I, if I've exercised a lot, then that means that I can eat like trash. Just kind of evens out at best. Uh, but if you eat well or cut out eating badly and work out, that's when you start to really see growth. This is what I mean by two dimensions. Uh, when I was in counseling, I remember it was a big turning point in my growth when I started to see this two-dimensional phenomenon of growth. Uh, I was there because I had an addiction and I just wanted to be free from it. Um, just getting rid of the addiction was synonymous with being healthy to me. I was really only focused on turning away from my addiction. Um, I started realizing that it wasn't just about turning away from unhealth, but also about turning toward health and embracing new changes and new healthier ways to navigate the world. So it wasn't just about me exhibiting, not exhibiting the same behavior. It was not about just confronting dysfunctional thought patterns. It was about learning healthy thought patterns. Not just about letting go of past trauma, but taking up repentance and forgiveness to deal with that trauma in healthy ways. Um, and continuing to have repentance and forgiveness and grace a part of my life to help navigate future tough situations. Um, it wasn't just about letting go of shame, it was about picking up grace. I'm not just letting go of addiction, but learning to be a healthy person. So growth is this two-dimensional process of simultaneously letting things go and putting some things down and taking up new things and embracing new changes. So this rhythm of growth, putting down or turning away from something while also picking up or turning towards something else seems to be baked into many of the practices of our faith. Uh, it's the season of Lent that is a week away um, Next week is the last day of Epiphany on Tuesday. Wednesday is the first day of Lent. Um, we'll be talking about more of this in a little bit, but Lent is dripping with this idea of putting something down and taking something up. 
It's baked into the practices of our faith, but also the stories of our faith. And it's certainly in the story that we're gonna be looking at tonight. I certainly hope so anyway, otherwise I've wasted this entire intro talking about something that does not relate to what we're talking about. Um, we're looking at the story of John the Baptist from Matthew 3, which you may or may not be familiar with. Uh, this story picks up immediately where we left off last week, but we fast forward at least 25 years. If you don't remember last week or you weren't here, um, we looked at the story of Jesus, Mary, and Joseph fleeing to Egypt when Jesus was a toddler to escape Herod. Um, and if you remember, we talked about fear and how we handle fear by juxtaposing, juxtaposing, juxt yeah, juxtaposing the way Joseph and Herod handled fear in that story. Um, but if you recall, I also laid out how this story of Jesus and Joseph and Mary fleeing to Egypt and then coming back um, echoes and reflects and alludes back to significant points in, in Israel's history. That trend is going to continue in our story tonight. Um, so we're going to be taking uh, we're going to be taking a look at this entire chapter of Matthew three. It's only seventeen verses, so it's not that bad. Um, but we're going to take it. Usually, I like to read the whole thing to you, and then we'll come back and talk about it. This time, we're just going to take it chunk by chunk and, and stop to talk about it along the way. Okay. So this is Matthew three, starting at verse one. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, "Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near." This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair and he had the leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Okay, a few things to talk about here. Actually, like those couple verses, I think five, five or six verses uh, are jam-packed with information that is important to this story. So John, John the Baptist, if you remember way back in Advent, we talked about John um, being the son of Zechariah. We talked about the song that Zechariah sings as one of the Advent songs. This is Jesus's second cousin, um, Mary's, Jesus's mom, her cousin, Elizabeth, as John, so they are second cousins. He's born a few months before Jesus. And if you remember from that talk in Advent, John is um, in a way supposed to be a new Elijah. Elijah was an extremely popular prophet from way earlier in Israel's history. Uh, John is the first prophet of Israel in 400 years. And his birth signals the, the return of God's voice to the people after 400 years of silence from prophets. So he's kind of a big deal. <laughs> Uh, we're told about his clothes and his diet uh, because he rejected material comfort and embraced poverty, much like Elijah did, if you know anything about him, and very much in contrast to Israel's powerful and elite like Herod, who we talked about last week, and the Pharisees and Sadducees, who we'll talk about this week. Uh, we're also, it says that we're out in the wilderness. That's significant. If you remember from last week, the, the people of Israel at this time are living in a police state. Uh, at this point, Herod, who we talked about last week is dead, but his son, um, well, one of his sons comes to power and then about 10 years later, he gets taken out. So now it's what different one of his sons named Antipas. Uh, Herod Antipas is in charge and he keeps a lot of what his father had in place, which made it very, very difficult for the people to publicly gather together safely. But out in the wilderness, away from the cities, away from the comforts of Jerusalem, they're safe. But it tells us specifically that they're at the Jordan River. 
And this is incredibly significant. This is out in the wilderness wilderness to the east of Jerusalem. And uh, at this river, over a thousand years earlier, after Israel had been liberated from Egypt, after they'd wandered around the desert for 40 years following Moses and then Joshua, they cross the Jordan River. And that is them entering the promised land. It's a huge turning point in Israel's history as they finally enter this land that they've been promised and have been searching for, for years and years and years. So John is gathering and baptizing the people out in this river. And that choice is very intentional and significant. Speaking of baptism, um, baptism, we associate it very much to be a Christian practice. It wasn't a foreign concept to Jewish people at this time. Uh, It was a practice of ritual purity that different sects of Judaism uh, handled a bit differently. Uh, But when Gentiles, when non-Jewish people wanted to convert to Judaism, they were baptized. Our practice and tradition of baptism grows out of what John did here, but uh, we'll talk more about that this spring and summer when it gets a little bit warmer and we're able to have a baptism service. We'll talk about um, what baptism means for us today. Um, But that's what John is up to. He's baptizing people as though they are converts to Judaism. And his message, which foreshadows Jesus's message is this, repent. And you've probably heard that word before, I'm guessing, probably familiar with the concept of repentance. And if you're like most people, when you hear it, you think it means to feel really, really bad about things that you've done wrong. But that's not a great definition of it. That's not what it means. The word literally means to change your mind. And the sense is very much what two-dimensional growth looks like. It's turning away from something, but it's also turning toward something else. It's putting down something to take up something better. Repent from your sin towards righteousness, toward this new kingdom of God. So John, this prophet, a prophet like in the days of Israel's past is out in the wilderness, like the prophets of the past. And he's having the people come out to the waters that their ancestors crossed when they first came into the land. And he has them baptized as though they're converting to Judaism while calling them to repentance. This is John rededicating the people of Israel into a new Israel, into a new kingdom, what Matthew calls the kingdom of heaven and the other gospel writers call the kingdom of God. That is all communicated in just those first six verses of this this chapter. So picking back up in verse seven, the rest of this is gonna go faster, I promise. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, burn. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Okay, so uh, this is significant. Anytime you see Pharisees and Sadducees together, you should think, what is going on here? That doesn't make any sense. These are two different sects of, I gotta find a different word to say there, S-E-C-T-S of Judaism that were polar opposite of each other. They had polar opposite approaches to life. Um, Pharisees were very much, uh, fundamentalists in the sense that th- this is a, these are going to be broad generalizations, but you get the idea. Uh, they followed the law strictly and even extended the law. They put extra rules in place so that Israel, so that the idea was that you wouldn't come close to breaking the actual law. Um, they believed that the reason why things had gone poorly in the past is because people broke God's laws. And they thought that if they just kept all the laws, everything would be fine and God would help them prosper they eventually kind of take that too far and start to lose sight of actually like caring for people and loving people. And all they care about is 
getting it right. On the exact opposite end of this, you have the Sadducees who were the elite, the rich, uh, the, they ran the, uh, the priesthood, um, the high priest was a Sadducee. They were uh, the liberal wing of Judaism at this time, and they were very much in bed with Rome and Herod. Um, so you sort of had these like fundamentalists, and then you have like the liberals that kind of don't really believe in religion, but just sort of use it for their power and to stay in power. Um, could not be more different from one another, but both are powerful groups at this time. Both of them being present illustrates the broad appeal of John. John is getting masses and masses of people who believe all sorts of different things to come out to the desert. And both of these powerful groups uh, are here because they don't wanna be left out of whatever this movement is. And John and, and later Jesus take issue with both of these groups approach. And John calls them a brood of vipers. Now, uh, growing up, and I think even in seminary, I always just learned that like, that's just a, that was just like, a really bad thing to call people back then. Like if you really wanted to hurt someone's feelings, you called them a viper or better yet, a brood of vipers. And uh, I didn't learn until this week. The reason for that is because at this time, people thought that um, the way vipers were born is that they would be born inside of their mother and eat their way out, killing their mother in the process. Yeah, this, this is actually like a sick burn. Um, so a commentary that I was reading was saying like, this is calling someone a parent killer, which was like one of the most reprehensible offenses at this time, which makes a little bit more sense um, to something that John will say in a minute, but he, he tells them produce fruit. And he's basically saying your authenticity and what you're here for is gonna be proven by how you grow and how you change your life which as we'll see later, the key mark of fruit is um, the fruit of repentance is love, specifically sacrificial love of others. So John is saying, we'll see if you're here because you're, you wanna keep a, a, a pulse on what's popular and you wanna keep uh, an idea of what's powerful. You wanna keep, you wanna stay in power. You're out here because you wanna see what's going on or are you out here for the right reasons? Okay, picking back up, verse nine. And do not think that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that one of these stones, God, out of one of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The ax is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. So Jesus is warning these Jewish leaders to not assume that simply because they're descendants of Abraham, that that automatically means that they're right with God, which makes a little bit more sense when he calls them parent killers. He's like, you guys have killed your parents, but then you wanna claim your parents' ancestry to prove that you're good. He's saying, don't rely on your ethnicity or your genetics to save you. What matters is your heart, not your genes. G-E-N-E-S, uh, obviously. Um, picking back up, verse 11. I'm now gonna switch to the message version of this passage. I don't recommend typically switching translations in the middle of a passage. Uh, and I try not to do it, but the, the next parts of the message renders this just so perfectly that I couldn't help myself. So this is verse 11 now from the message throughout. John says, I'm baptizing you here in the river, turning your old life in for a kingdom life. The real action comes next. The main character in this drama, compared to him I'm a mere stagehand, will ignite the kingdom life within you, a fire within you, the Holy Spirit within you, changing you from the inside out. He's going to clean house, make a clean sweep of your lives. He'll place everything true in its proper place before God. Everything false he'll put out in the trash to be burned. 
So John is saying much of what he is doing is uh, symbolic and ordinary, right? It is calling people into this uh, to, to dedicate their lives through kind of this symbolic gesture. But he says, Jesus is coming to inaugurate a lasting change from the inside out through the Holy Spirit. Picking back up, verse 13 to the end, we're almost there. Jesus then appeared. Last time we saw Jesus, he was a toddler. All of a sudden now, full grown. Jesus then appeared arriving at the Jordan River from Galilee. He wanted John to baptize him. John objected. I'm the one who needs to be baptized, not you. But Jesus insisted, do it. God's work, putting things right. All these, God's work of putting things right all these centuries is coming together right now in this baptism. So John did it. The moment Jesus came up out of the baptismal waters, the skies opened up and he saw God's spirit. It looked like a dove descending and landing on him. And along with the spirit of voice, this is my son chosen and marked by my love, delight of my life. So John recognizes Jesus' superiority and his need for Jesus. But Jesus basically says, nah, man, trust me, this is gonna be rad. And foreshadowing what would happen later, Jesus submits to a baptism, a ritual cleansing and purifying that he did not need. And then this amazing scene happens. Uh, We're gonna talk more next week about um, what God says to Jesus in this moment. Um, But the the kind of last thing we're gonna talk about for this passage is something that I I freaking love this. Um, The symbol of the dove is incredibly significant. And it is a twofold illusion. It is a two for one. Um, it's like the opposite of two birds with one stone. It's one bird that means two different things. Uh, if you hear about a dove in a story in the Bible, it is almost always going to be alluding back to this moment in Genesis during the flood with Noah and the ark and the animals. After 40 days and 40 nights of it raining, Noah sends out birds to see if the waters have started receding. And it's not until he sends out a dove and a dove comes back with an olive branch in its mouth that he knows that the waters have receded. The dove is a symbol, specifically a dove with an olive branch. This is why like an olive branch is a symbol of peace. That dove is a a symbol of peace between God and man now that the flood is over. So it's, it's a symbol of new life and new creation and new hope after everything being destroyed. That's the first thing that it alludes to. But the spirit being described as being like a bird hovering over the water of the Jordan would have immediately caught the people originally reading this or hearing this, it would have caught their attention. And they would have instantly recognized this as an allusion back to the very, very, very beginning. In the very first few words of the Bible, the very first few words of Genesis 1, before God had created anything, the spirit is said to hover like a bird over the waters of the formless void and oceans. It doesn't literally say like a bird. The word that it uses for hover is a word that is only described as a bird brooding over a nest or hovering over its young. It's a symbol of creation. God is creating again. So all of these callbacks uh, to Israel and really all of creation's history, combined with the callbacks that we saw last week of tracing through Israel's history, um, all of this is meant to show that God is at work again. He's up to something new. He's creating a new kingdom, a new Israel, a new creation 
He's creating new life. And he's inviting all of the people in if they'll repent and join what he's doing, if they'll put down the things that are distracting them and take up following him. That's all present in just these 17 verses. And there's so much more that I skipped over because just who has time for all of this? So, uh, all right, so what? Why does that matter? It's cool, but like, why does that matter for us? I think it matters because the same God, the same Holy Spirit that was up to something new then is still at work today. The new kingdom, this new way of life that Jesus inaugurates uh, is um, one in which this recreation and this reorientation and this repentance is continually and readily available to us. So my question is, what do you need to turn away from or put down so that you can fully turn toward or take up the new thing that God is calling you into or calling out of you? What do you need to put down so that you can take up something new that God is calling you toward? This could be any number of things and they could feel huge or they can feel small. Um, Maybe like me, it, it was an addiction or it is an addiction that you need to turn away from. Maybe it's patterns of behavior that you see in yourself that you don't like that are inhibiting your relationships and your growth. Maybe they're destructive ways that you speak to yourself. Maybe it's anger and resentment that you hold. Maybe it's just unhealthy habits. Maybe it is an unhealthy diet, not taking care of yourself, eating way too much bread. My own thing that I feel like I'm being called to let go of and take up um, is to let go of fear and take up boldness, uh, speci- specifically around uh, who I am and what I believe. Um, this is, it's kind of like all encompassing in my life. And the only examples that I can think of to talk to are like really small sections of my life. But hopefully this gives you an idea of what I'm talking about. Um, I don't like... <laughs> I don't like going to parties and it's not because I'm an introvert. Um, If I know everyone there, I love going to parties, but I don't like going to parties where I don't know a majority of the people because I was telling uh, some people this in a staff meeting last week. My least favorite question is, what do you do? I love asking other people that question because I'm terrible at small talk, but I hate when people ask me that question um, because most of the time, I would say 98% of the time, uh, their reaction is extreme. (laughs) And sometimes it's like a positive reaction and sometimes it's a negative reaction, but it almost always changes everything instantly. And I'm no longer interacting with like a person. It's all of a sudden some projection of what they think about probably a lot of things, but certainly Christianity and pastors in general. So, you know, I have had people... Um, respond so positively that they've, like I've been at a wedding and they've asked me to change the weather because God listens to me more than them. And I assured them that if that were true, I would be very wealthy because uh, I can't be trusted with that kind of power. But um, I I was telling people this story too. Uh, Sometimes people have bad reactions. I was in line um, somewhere, talking to this guy and we were talking for five or 10 minutes and then like everything was fine. And he, he was like, so what do you do? And I was like, I'm actually a pastor. He went, oh, <laughs> that was it. That was the end of our conversation. Literally just turned around and stopped talking to me. Um, 
was like, okay. Uh, which was fine, you know, I wasn't, where were we? We were, oh, okay, no, I'm not gonna talk about that. This was, I was a lot younger, okay? We were, Michaela drugged me out to a club. <laughs> we were waiting in line to go inside and uh, you know, that might be my least favorite place in the world. Not because I'm judgmental, because I'm, I'm, I don't like dancing. And it was very late at night. At this point, I was already an old man. I was like 26 and I was like, I, I go to bed early. So, you know, I was already not in a great mood. And then this guy was like, okay, cool. So I'm never talking to you again. And I was like, that is smart because who would be standing in line to a club and think that they're going to be talking to a pastor? Anyway, <laughs> this idea of, of laying down fear and taking up boldness is much bigger and more comprehensive than this, but that's a small example of how it plays out. I don't like talking about what I do because I'm scared of the interaction that happens afterwards. What is it for you? What's the spirit stirring in you? And not just that, what, are, what is it? But, but how might you lean into this two-dimensional growth in this area during the season of Lent that starts next Wednesday? Lent is a season of intentionality in which we give up something and take up something for the season. Uh, it's about six weeks. It's 40 days, not counting the Sundays. Um, but we give up something to create space and we take up something, a new practice or a new way to embrace and, and encourage growth. We'll talk about more uh, all about this next week. Um, so you don't have to figure out all of this right now on the spot. But I wanted to talk about it now early so that you can be thinking about what God might be calling you away from and what he might be calling you into and how you can practice and lean into that during, during the next several weeks of the next season that we're about to enter into. What do you need to turn away from so that you can fully turn toward what God is calling you into or calling out of you? Let's pray. God, thank you for, um, God, thank you for newness. Thank you for hope. Thank you that you continually extend to us an invitation um, to be more, to grow more into who you created us to be. God, thank you that you are just as much at work now as you were 2,000 years ago and that you are standing by ready for us to um, put down the things that are holding us back and take up the new life that you are calling us into. God, I pray that you would help each one of us see what that might be in this next season. I pray that you would help us um, through friends or, or through our own reflection, come to uh, some sort of conclusion about how we can practice that shift, that repentance, that turning away from and turning toward uh, in this next season of Lent together. We love you, God. Amen.